I'll write down that rabbit hole So reality is questionable Try but you just can't let it go These two right here put on the show It's paranormal overload with southern hospitality Haunted murder mayhem tip while discussing immortality Locations with a dark past History that comes to life Hillbillies with a knack for Everything that goes bump at night Overthinking if you by yourself These two will have you turning on the lights Mixing in a little comedy to make sure it all fits in just right hey. Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories Now here's your hosts Jerry and Tracy Paul Heather Dog Ninja Sometimes they're cat Freddy, but never the ferrets. Hey, this is Nick Roth, and you're listening to Hillbilly Horror Stories. Hey guys, welcome to episode 330 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, we always want to start off thanking all of our military and civil servants all over the world. No matter which country you represent, as long as you're on the, as long as you're on the good side. Amen. And uh, so, big thank you to all you guys, gals, and service animals out there for everything you do. Yes, God bless you guys. We appreciate you so much. We, um, I really want to say we we ran a bonus episode of uh, Mandy Lemon, mm-hmm. and we've gotten a fantastic response for that. All positive people that were really. Um, moved by her story and people that that found some extra ambition after hearing her story and it was very nice to see that people were writing stuff like man you know i've struggled and it was this was the perfect time to hear this and you know i'm so glad that you guys posted that and i know mandy was extremely happy to be able to share her story and i've shared some of these comments with her and she was uh, excited that she's able to, to help make a difference. So it was a really good collaboration between uh, our our show and uh, her story. Yes, um, she is an amazing person. You know, we know her personally. She's just a wonderful human being. And if you get a chance to listen to that, you need to do that because she truly pours her heart and soul into that interview. And... You will be touched by it. I promise you that. And we are just so proud of what she's accomplishing now in her life. And she's on to do bigger and better things. And we're very proud of her and happy for her. We later found out that a couple of our uh, listeners had actually seen her in person and heard this story. Oh, okay. Yeah. So pretty cool. Well, that's awesome. All right. So I say that leading into the fact that. Obviously, this is a a rough time for a lot of people. The holiday seasons are really tough. The time change, the being dark, the dreariness of fall, all that has effect on on people's mental faculties. And uh, it makes it a very tough time for a lot of people that are already struggling. And even if you weren't struggling, this sometimes will bring on struggles. And uh, we just want people to know that we're out there for you. If you need to call us or text us or send us an email, if you need help from the group, we've got 50, almost pretty close to 6,000 people now. I know. How amazing is that? That are willing to help you at any time of day. Uh, don't hesitate to reach out. That uh, We just want you to know that, that you're loved, you're wanted, and you're needed, whether you realize it or not. If that ain't the truth. I don't know what is. So you guys reach out to us. We're always here for you. If you would rather go the different route, you can call 
or you can text them at 741-741. They're really good about, you know, answering and giving you advice or just listening or anything that you need. So don't feel ashamed. Just please contact us. We love you. And please remember that 988 number, that's a crisis line, not Mm -hmm. a suicide hotline. I know a lot of people say that. And a lot of people uh, have got that kind of that image that, well, I'm not suicidal, so there's no sense of calling that number. That number is for way more than that. If you're just having a little bit of a breakdown because you're having a hard time dealing with something, call them. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they will help you with all that. You don't. They've got people that can handle all kinds of different situations, so it's not suicide only. Amen, guys. We love you, and we're all here for you. All right, so Tracy, I found a really cool story from London, England to share this week. Now, of course, when this comes out, we will be wrapping up at CryptidCon. Yep. So we're recording this a little bit early, and I didn't get a chance to have an interview set up this week to put on the end uh, end of the story, but what I did do was dig deep, and I found an old one that got a lot of acclaim from Bishop James Long. Yes. So we're going to put that one on at the end of this Good, one. Good, so because I love to hear to him speak. Again. He's just amazing. He absolutely is. And he's got a lot of big things happening right now. He so. sure does. All right. So tonight we're going to talk about the Grenadier, which may be the most haunted bar in all of London. And that says something on its own. Is that an alcohol? I think I think it is also. Grenadier? But it's more of a military term. Oh, okay. But I think uh, there there is an alcohol or something that's similar. I've heard to that, of that. Grenadine, maybe. Grenadine, that's what Grenadine. it is. Okay, my bad. Yeah, that sounds like somebody that was on Sanford's son. Lamont, go get grenadine. Oh. <laughs> and you know he was the uh, ultimate first pawn shop owner. Just letting y'all know that. Who? He didn't own a pawn shop. Well, he owned a junkyard. He owned and junkyard, it's just good. But that's not a pawn shop. <laughs> It's just as well. <laughs> like how you compared those two. Anyways, um, so we're going to talk about the Grenadier. It was built in 1720. Dang. And this is a pretty hard place to find unless you're really uh, familiar with the area there. Is it still standing? Yes. Oh, no way. Yes, better than it ever has. Very cool. Let's see what I did oh, there. Oh, I'm still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. <laughs> All right. It has an atmosphere of kind of a laid-back, out-in-the-country type bar. That's so Even cool. though it's right in the city. Heck yeah. I wrote a phone number down. I don't know why, because that's a different phone number. Anyways, oh. there are... <laughs> okay. I was thinking, why not write the phone number down? It was a local number. So, oh. anyway, it's just me using my number. It'd be kind of cool to call that place, though. Yeah, it would be. And see what's up. When I've done that before. I, I know you have. Place, I called that place up in Canada, that bar. I know. Because there was two bars, and the stories were screwed up, and I, but that's neither here nor there. Oh, okay. Sorry. I'll shut up now. There's a few narrow steps that actually lead up to the small bar, and all of the military paraphernalia that's hanging in the walls includes a glass frame beside the bar that has some yellowing newspaper cuttings that refer to a ghostly guardsman that is said to haunt the bar. So they obviously relished this. Now, if you haven't guessed it by now, by the name of the place and the interior decor, this pub actually has some military connections. The alley alongside the bar is even called the Old Barrack Yard. This alley actually used to serve as a training ground for soldiers that were being drilled, and you could actually hear the feet stamping and the orders being uh, shouted during those days if you just walked by. Very cool, very cool. 
The pub itself used to be called the Guardsman. Also, yeah, military related. The legend says that while the public once drank in the downstairs area, they would actually well, they do more than drink. They were actually they would gamble, they would drink, they would brawl, a little bit of everything. Sounds like a but, fun place. But that was downstairs. The ground floor was actually the mess hall for the officers of the Duke of Wellington's regiment. Wow. Some even said that the Iron Duke himself, who had a uh, home nearby, would sometimes come by and have a drink and play cards with his men. But this is probably just a myth because he was very much against drinking and gambling in public. So it wouldn't make sense for him to show up at a bar and do that. Why? Well, I could do it in private. Right. So it's that's what I'm saying. It's probably not something oh. he did. All right. So I'm, we're not going to get into a ton of history because I really couldn't find a lot of history other than when the building was built and a little bit about the alley. Mm-hmm. So you're going to get a long dose of nothing but hauntings with this one. Woohoo! All right. So we'll talk about the hauntings here. Now, the backstory says that one day a young subaltern was caught cheating during a card game. Well, that's not good. No. And a subaltern, by the way, is an officer in the British military below the rank of captain and usually a second lieutenant, at least according to the information that I was able to scrounge up. Because I was like, what's a subaltern? Yeah, never heard of it. Anyways, he got caught and the rest of the men at the table basically beat the crap out of him. Mm. You didn't need to learn how to bluff or something. (laughs) He got beat so bad that he got up. He then staggered down the steps to what is the cellar now. And he collapsed and died. Oh, my gosh. The year that this happened is unknown. But that's the backstory that everybody goes with what happened and why he haunts the place. So don't cheat, people. You get the crap beat out of you. (laughs) Like I said, they don't know the year that it happened. But they do know that it happened in September, which just happens to be the month that is the, has the most paranormal activity okay. in the bar. Well, that makes sense then. These stories of a haunting go back several decades. In fact, author Joseph Braddock actually wrote about some of the hauntings in his book called Haunted Houses in 1956. Back then, Braddock talked to the landlord, which was a man by the name of Roy Grigg. Now, Grigg said that he wasn't sure that he believed in the cheating officer stories, but he did know that the pub was haunted. He did know? Yeah. He said he didn't know the pub was haunted. He just mm-hmm. didn't know if that's what caused the haunting. Oh, gotcha. He said that there was a strange and menacing atmosphere there, and it underwent an annual cycle building up throughout the year and would climax in September and then would then have a cigarette. <laughs> During the first two weeks of that month, Griggs' dog always grew agitated. He would growl and snarl as as if it was afraid. Mm -hmm. In the cellar, it would scratch away at the floor, apparently trying to unearth something, leading many to believe that that may be where the young subaltern's body was buried right there in the cellar. What an interesting find that would be. On September in 1952, Griggs' nine-year-old son said he saw a mysterious black shadow. Now, he was alone upstairs in his, in his room. He was just laying on the bed, and he had the bedroom door open. So outside in the hallway at the landing, top of the stairs, 
there was a light that would shine into the room. Well, a shadow appeared on his door. And he watched in terror as the shadow became larger and larger. But then it started to shrink and it went away. It looked as if someone was in the hallway and it started walking towards his room. And then changed his mind and just walked away. Hmm. That same year, Mrs. Griggs was getting changed in her bedroom. It was in the afternoon and there was nobody upstairs on the top floor at all. So she didn't bother to close the bedroom door. Needless to say, she was shocked to see a man coming up the stairs. So she quickly covered herself and turned around to find that no one was there. I just wanted a little sneak peek. Come on. Right. It's been a long time. She had not recognized the man's face, and she never saw him again after that. But a year later, a second person spotted an unknown man on the staircase. Now, she was actually the owner of another pub that was in Hammersmith. Her name was Mrs. Ward. She had been doing a little bit of drinking there at that bar, and she said she clearly saw a man walk up the stairs. So she told the bartender, Mm because there wasn't supposed to be anybody up there. The bartender called a group of men together. They went up, and no trace of the man could be found. So they hadn't hadn't heard of anybody else reporting to see a man walk up the stairs? I don't guess until these two times. I guess this was the first time that somebody saw one walk up Mm -hmm. from the bottom floor. Because when the other time, she was on the top floor when she saw him. Okay. In 1953, a childhood friend of Roy Grigg was staying the night. He had actually... uh, had just driven the family home from Plymouth. So he's up in one of the bedrooms. Now, he had been told by the barman that there's something off about that room. So being a Roman Catholic, he hung a rosary over the bed for his protection. Despite that, he woke up in the middle of the night to find that the room was icy cold. He was uncomfortably certain that he was not alone. He felt like something was lurking beside his bed trying to touch him. Ooh. That's kind of... And did rosary didn't do a daggone thing to help him? Apparently not. Shoot. Or think about how bad it would have been if he hadn't had the rosary. Oh. He might have actually got touched. Yeah. In 1966, Dr. George Owen and the experienced journalist Victor Sims interviewed Jeffrey and Paula Bernard, who had this time had taken over the bar. Now mm-hmm. they were the they were the owners. Dr. Owen and Sims wrote about this in their 1971 book Science and the Spook. That's a good name for a book. Yeah. Jeffrey Bernard said that when he came there and he heard all these ghostly tales that he chalked them up to imagination and gossip. He then said, "But now I must admit that there's much more here than meets the eye." Both of the Bernards stated that no one they knew had actually seen the spirit, but staff members had constantly experienced plenty of mysterious happenings. Things like lights turning on and off and footsteps in empty rooms. And get this, pairs of socks moving from one room to another. <laughs> well, at least they stayed in pairs. That's true. That's true. That is, that's like a, that's like a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> There was also a paneled back room that customers would complain of a chilly atmosphere. One remarkably odd occurrence was that a beer bottle's tops would pop up just straight up into the air. 
So if you're standing there, there's a beer bottle. It's got its little top on it, and mm-hmm. it just pop off straight up into the air. That's nice. Bound and very helpful. Unless you're not ready to drink your beer yet. Well, but who's not ever ready to drink their beer? Well, they might already have one in front of them. They don't want the other one to get hot. Oh, well. Chug-a-lug. <laughs> staff refused to sleep on the premises in September. And some staff quit after claiming to see a light bulb <laughs> gently unscrew itself from the socket and then float down to the ground. <laughs> they would also hear an electric buzzer sound and no one was anywhere around the button to push the buzzer. Oh, wow. Now, I want to say that uh, it was obvious through looking at this, even though they, it wouldn't really point it out. But like I said, it's obvious when you look into it. There were some bedrooms and stuff on this upper level that sometimes, it, uh, I guess, maybe the owners or the uh, barmaids, would mm-hmm. they would stay there. So I know you'll hear more about their upstairs bedroom, their upstairs bedroom. So there were rooms up there where if you ran the bar, you actually had a place to stay there, too. Okay. okay. But I think that and I think there was multiple uh, bedrooms, because like I said, some of the had friends come up and spend a night and stuff like that. Some of the staff members were allowed to stay. Mm-hmm. So I think there was just uh, always rooms available for people if they wanted to stay on the premises, well, as nice well as though. live on the premises, mm-hmm. if you were uh, one of the people in charge. Right. If you wanted to, that is. Right. With all that ghostly crap going on, who knows? There was even some talk that the phenomenon affected some of the nearby houses on Wilton Row, which was the the area there. It's called Wilton Row. There were tapping sounds and electric light switches that turned themselves on and on in some of the houses in the vicinity. Okay. One day, head barman Tom Westwood was actually pouring a pint when the flow of the beer suddenly shut off. So he's, he's upstairs... In the bar, and he's at the tap. Okay. Okay. Now, he assumed that one of the glass pipes that led from the barrels downstairs, upstairs, would bust. Because sometimes that would happen, especially in the colder weather. And when this happened, it would result in a messy flood, as you can remember. If you get a glass pipe running from a barrel up and the glass pipe busts, Mm -hmm. there's going to be beer everywhere. Yeah. So... He's pouring this beer. It just stops. His only assumption. It froze. It's, 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 either, it's either froze or it's busted. So he goes down to the cellar expecting the worst. Sure enough, the pipe had busted. But there was no mess to clean up because someone had turned off the valve on the barrel. Now Westwood was the only one who had access to the cellar. He was the only one that had a key. Okay, but this 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 thing sounds pretty nice to me. So far, yeah. I mean, he's trying to be like he's trying to. Did it? Did you say it made a mess or just busted? No, it hadn't made a mess. See, the glass prevented... pipe was busted, but but because somebody turned off yeah. the valve, so he prevented a big old mess and a waste of good beer. Right. I like this dude. But uh, Westwood said that it's a mystery as to how the tap ever got turned off. Because it wasn't something that could have just happened on its own. And the door was locked and he was yeah, only with the key. Yeah, with the key. So, on another occasion, the bar had closed for lunch. And Westwood had sat down to eat with his mother-in-law. All the ashtrays had previously been emptied and no fire was burning anywhere in the bar. So you could imagine their surprise when they both saw a wisp of smoke appear in midair. Now, this happened close to the shelf near the door. Now, Westwood said that at first, 
He just assumed that a customer left a cigarette butt burning, but then he seen that there was no source for the smoke whatsoever. Nothing was on fire, and no one was even close to that area. The smoke just appeared in midair out of nowhere. Whoa, man. He said he'd been puzzled ever since, but this wouldn't be the last of the surprises. A few days later, a brewery inspector was actually standing in that exact same spot. And he said that the brewery inspector suddenly felt a burning pain on his wrist. He jerked. Westwood's mother-in-law walked over and she examined his arm. She said there was a mark there as if it had been burned by a lit cigarette. Like a fresh mark? Yes. Then, in December 1967, the Daily Express wrote an article. Mr. Bernard said that he had moved on from the Grenadier. He was no longer no longer an owner or, or working there. But he said that the ghost was always up to something at the time he was there. He said they would hear loud footsteps coming from nowhere and hear extra loud bangings on the doors at the time that they lived at the residence. He said that the ghost would also throw things about. So... Not really throwing things at him, per se, just throwing no. stuff in the air. Yeah. Okay. I thought maybe he was starting to get a little mean since you said he got burnt with that cigarette, that guy. No, that's a different guy. No, I know that. I'm saying, yeah. but yeah, I'm just no, saying. No, 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 no. No, that was the only, that, actually, out of all the stories, that's the only one that kind of seems, you know. Mean. There's another. There's another part of the story that you might be able to take that way, but mm-hmm. that was more, it, it'll be more of a reaction than, than, than the the actual response, I guess. All right. So Bernard went on to say that he even recalled his teenage daughter seeing a shadow that should not have been there. Now, that story is reminiscent of the one told by Mr. Griggs's nine-year-old son. In that same article, the then current manager, Greta Bauman, and her staff knew of the resident ghost there at the Grenadier, and they referred to him simply as him. <laughs> Bauman's uh, assistant manager, Valerie Roberts, now she shared a few of him's activities. She said that a few days earlier, the lounge door wouldn't open to any key. Then, suddenly, it was unlocked. Hmm. Sometimes, bottle tops would spin sideways, not downwards, sideways across the room. So let's say you flipped the you took the bottle cap off. Yeah. Instead of it falling down to the ground, it would go sideways across the room. Oh, okay. I thought maybe you meant like he was spinning the top on the bar or something. You Mm-mm. know what I'm saying? One Christmas she was in the lounge. She was all alone. It was about two AM. And she heard some footsteps above her. They were coming from her bedroom. So that's what I was talking about. She's an assistant, but yeah. she had a bedroom up there. Mm-hmm. They were coming from her bedroom, and she knew that she was the only one in the bar, and she was terrified. I would have been, too. Tom Westwood was succeeded as head barman by a gentleman by the name of Graham Fox. Now, he took on the role from 1982 to the end of 1983, so about two years. He, too, had his share of paranormal experiences. By now, though, the ghost was known as Cedric. Cedric. 
And I don't know where the name came from, yeah. but they started calling it Cedric. So in the early 80s, that's what said. And if you go to their official website, it actually lists him as Cedric as well. Okay. So. Well, I'm glad he got a name. So anyways, Fox would later go on to tell about an event that was uh, happening one night around 8.30 p.m. It was in the wintertime. It was really cold. Fox said he went downstairs to retrieve some cigars. They were kept in a, uh, a small little wooden lockup down there in the cellar. This is actually where they kept uh, their liquor and their tobacco. So that's mm-hmm. where you had to go if you needed any of the top shelf stuff. It's a very on busy nights and such as this one. He said it was really hard to get a smoke break sometimes. So Fox often kept a cigarette downstairs in a glass ashtray on a shelf right next to the lockup. So we had to go down there. He would just grab a quick smoke. Season the moment while he was downstairs, he lit a cigarette. As he did, the landlord's black cat wandered into the cellar. He said the temperature instantly plummeted. The cat instantly reacted by arching its back and it sank its teeth and claws into Fox's leg. Why? Because sec- smoking's bad for you? <laughs> so the cat sensed something. And that's why I said that's the only thing that the cat did something mean. But I don't think that was necessarily yeah. the intention of the ghost. Right. But, yeah. So the cat grabs onto his leg and bites and and claws, much the way Freddy does. And a few seconds later, the ashtray shot from the shelf on Fox's left and whizzed right past his head and crashed into the wall. Terrified, Fox fled from the cellar. I wonder if he smoking after that. <laughs> he might have. Fox also remembered that there was a photographer that came in to take some pictures of the pub right around the end of 1982. He said these uh, pictures were for an in-house magazine. A few weeks later, the photographer showed up with some news that there's a strange image had shown up on one of the developed pictures. This particular picture had been taken from the restaurant entrance, and it was looking toward the front window and the side door. Now, that little side door led out to old brickyard that uh, we were talking about earlier. Several pics had been taken from that exact same location, but only one had a very distinct image on a window pane. It looked like a face peering in, which would have been impossible because that window sits higher than anyone could actually reach with their head. Oh, maybe just floated up there. (laughs) Hey, up here. (laughs) No, just kidding. At first, the photographer thought that it was just an illusion caused by the shadows from the lantern Mm -hmm. that was in the room. But after he blew it up, the face became even more apparent. It appeared to belong to a young man wearing a fez hat and sporting a handlebar mustache. Spooky. Spooky. In January of 1988, Peter Martin arrived as the assistant manager. He took over as manager in 1990. Martin said that he remained kind of skeptical about the hauntings, but he did recount one time as an assistant manager that he had been at the bar with a friend of the landlord's at the time. It was around midnight, and the two watched in amazement as a bottle rose several feet into the air and then exploded. He also said that the keys would often just go missing only to show up a short time later. And an example of this was, 
he had needed the keys to get into the cellar so he could let the electricians in to do some work. The keys were not in their usual spot. And when he did find them, they would not open the lock. But when these same keys were given to the electrician, they opened the lock effortlessly. Hmm. That incident sounds remarkably similar to the incident that Valerie Roberts had shared 20 years earlier. Yep. All right, I decided to end this one with a fun fact like we do on Saturdays. If you go to the bar, there's money all over the ceiling. And supposedly, people put dollars and other bills up on the ceiling to pay for the debt of the ghost who's now commonly known as Cedric. Oh my goodness, so that's pretty they're awesome. Try, they're trying to pay his debt, so but it's a little late. Well, that's you know. still nice. That Very restaurant, cool. by the way, that they have there, this is like top-notch restaurant stuff. This is not bar food. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was looking at some of the prices on the menu, and they've got stuff like Beef Wellington. and oh, nice. They've got a lot of entrees that are $34, $35, $36 a pop. Right. Yeah. Moving so, on up, aren't so they? So you got the pub and stuff there that's well-known, but then the restaurant that's that's there is, like I said, it's a, it's a top-of-the-line restaurant. It's mm-hmm. not cheap by any means, and the food all looked good. Nice. So, well, good. Anyways, that's our story on the Grenadier, which is a fantastic pub. Yeah, sounds awesome. All right, so we're going to take a quick sponsor break, and then we'll be back with a little bit of housekeeping, and then uh, Bishop James Long. All right, guys, so we really don't have anything to add to the live shows because I've been so busy this week, I haven't been able to connect with anybody from... uh, Where's that place we're going to New Orleans? <laughs> Haven't been able to do that, but we've sold a bunch of tickets already. Thank you to guys all the so other much shows. for that. Yeah, that's incredible. Really, look, really looking forward to all the shows coming up. For so sure. Louisville, Pigeon Forge, Detroit, Buffalo, all have tickets sold. Multiple tickets. Yeah, sold for each one of them. Yes. And hopefully by the time we go to Buffalo, the snow will be gone. <laughs> right, since we're getting like six feet of snow. Yeah, they're expected for what four, four to six. Four to feet. six. I know within like a short period of time. So, you know, please pray for those guys. It's going to be pretty scary, I think. But anyway, those things make great Christmas gifts. So go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com and get your uh, tickets right there. All right, Tracy. So what do we got going on over there? All right. Our iTunes this week is Mojo Lobster and Loga's Mom, 82, and I hope I didn't say that wrong. Thank you guys for your reviews, as always. We appreciate you all so, so much, and it's like the highlight of my day. So thank you again for that. Yes. Thank you so much. All right, guys. uh, Let's go ahead and uh, listen to James Long, and rather than come back and end it, I'll just end it now and say thank you for everything you do. And then when you hear Bishop Long done, you can just turn it off. Yeah. We're not coming back. We're you done. You guys have a blessed week. <laughs> we love you. Hey, guys, I got a special treat for you this week. Bishop James Long is uh, going to be on with us. And Bishop Long, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. I've had a privilege of, of seeing you do a couple of presentations. And I've actually seen you do a wedding. <laughs> so well, not, you know. A good thing, not like a exorcism or something, but actually, so, so you uh, preside over the wedding, uh, over some good friends of mine, and and you come across as a completely genuine class act, and I want to commend you for that because I know you're uh, you do a lot for the community that you live in, and uh, I just want to say thank you for doing that. Well, I appreciate that. That is really kind of you to say. 
So I know the audience out here, that our audience, it's obviously a paranormal group. They like the fact of talking, obviously, of those types of subjects. And you are an exorcist and a demonologist. You actually teach courses on those types of things. And I wanted you to kind of tell me a little bit about how you got into that side of it. I mean, obviously, you were uh, already in the clergy, but what happened to get you into this side of it from the demonology and exorcism standpoint? Well, you know, I, I wanted I knew I wanted to be a priest when I was five years old. I mean, I just knew. When, in kindergarten, I remember telling my mom that I want to do what he does, and I was pointing at the priest, you know, saying Mass, and... That that never went away. It just actually grew. And then around nine years old, I, I remember picking up my first book on demonology, and it was it, it, it was like an aha moment, and it, it felt so natural, like I was truly guided towards as many books as I could possibly find. And back then, we didn't have computers. <laughs> we had card catalogs. So, you know, I had to go through all the, I mean, all, all the stuff and all the files, and I finally got as many books, and I was reading, and just reading, and reading, and reading, and the more I read, the more I wanted to know, and it, that never never went away, ever. I mean, even today, I still read as much as I can on the topic, and so I decided then um, to, to join uh, the Roman Catholic Seminary, and I studied for six years, and truly, it was the best years of my life. It was the education that I received uh, was, oh my God, I, I just, I cannot speak highly enough. I mean, it's just, I was truly blessed. But I really felt a deep calling to serve everybody, regardless of their faith or anything else. I wanted to serve everyone. And, and there were some other issues that I had with the Roman Church, so I decided to join the Old Catholics. And, um, and I was ordained a deacon priest, and then eventually consecrated to the Episcopacy. And so I was trained um, by an exorcist, and uh, I, I, as of today, I've done 28 actual documented exorcisms. And these are real exorcisms on individuals who are validly possessed. And I say documented because there were um, professionals, uh, medical professionals that were there that also have documentation of what occurred. And so um, that's different than the than a house blessing or minor rite of exorcism. So I've done hundreds, thousands of minor rites of exorcism. With a solemn rite, I've done 28 as of today. And, and I wanted to, for me, I've been in the paranormal for such a long time that I wanted to give back and teach because I love teaching. And so I wanted to teach people at least a little bit of what I've seen and what I know on the subject so that... Uh, other people can, can gain some information on the topic as well. Well, that's fascinating in its own right. Just to talk about the, uh, you know, the smaller exorcisms, the, the minor rights. Is that what it is? That what the, the term minor is? Right. You know, just yeah. to hear that how many of those are out there. So let me ask you this. How many, how many calls a week would you say you got or an email or something of that nature with someone stating that they felt like they needed an exorcism done? Uh, when I see you April the 6th, I will show you my phone. Uh, right now, let me double check. And two weeks ago, I cleared it out. Let me just double check one second here. I have 6,359 <laughs> emails. 
Goodness. And so when you see it, I'll, I'll have it completely cleared. Hopefully I'll go through all of them as much as I can. Uh, now, of course, there are some some nonsense uh, emails as far as, you know, the, the, the ridiculous emails. They want to sell me this or sell me that, that kind of spam emails. But I would say 80% of those emails are people around the world um, requesting and even demanding help. Now you've you've made your round of uh, some of the shows on TV. I know you uh, mm-hmm. did. You do one or two episodes of Ghost Adventures. Uh, three, three episodes. I'm sorry, my research is shoddy, as anybody who listens to us will know. <laughs> I try to do most of this <laughs> off memory. So, um, let me ask you a question. And and if you don't feel comfortable asking this, I completely understand. I've been very vocal on this show about Zach Bagans and my reason for being vocal is I feel like two things. I feel like that he's very disrespectful, not all the time. He seems like he can be a very, very nice guy, but sometimes on camera, I feel like that he's disrespectful in a setting of trying to communicate with someone who's passed on a lot of the yelling and the screaming and the taunting. I just don't agree with it. So I'm very critical about that. And he also claims to be possessed way more than I would think someone would be in those situations. What were your experiences with Zach and the gang? Um, as far as being able to actually work with them? Cause I'm just speaking on what I see on TV. You actually got to hang around these guys. Well, and I speak to Jack um, often as well, but I can tell you that the experiences that I had that I had Bobby Mackey's without question was 100% genuine. And actually, they didn't air quite a bit of stuff that was very personal that caused the guys to really shut down. I mean, we're talking completely shut down. Um, and I don't talk about that because it's personal unless they want to discuss that. They certainly can. But I, one thing that I'll tell people is I will never fake something, ever, because I have been in the paranormal for 20-plus years, and I have worked my tail off uh, to build some type of credibility, which I hope I have within the paranormal, and I refuse under any circumstances to blow that credibility just for a television show. I get offered television shows all the time, and they always tell me, uh, if you just perform an exorcism on camera, and then I tell them, well, if you just go to church, maybe you wouldn't ever ask me to do something such an abomination like that, because it's not something you're supposed to see. It's not supposed to, it's not a grab your popcorn and, and soft drink and watch the show. This is a very special, it's a very sacred rite. And I, I have told Zach many times, knock off the taunting, knock it off. You're gonna, I'm telling you, you're gonna get in some trouble. And he did, and he even admitted that there was some very serious activity going on in his home. And I can tell you, I validated what was going on in his home. So we worked through that issue. Um, but uh, yeah, the, Bobby Mackey's. The, there were some things that we captured that were very intense, very very intense. And I'll tell you, if I go to a place and there's nothing there, I'm going to tell you. Uh, if there is something there, then I'll tell you what it was, unless it was a very personal thing, and I don't want to obviously divulge that information. But if something happened, I'm very straightforward. And I don't work for Bobby Mackey's. So if there's no sense, I'm not going to you know, make up stories. I'll just tell you what I experienced. And we've been to Bobby Mackey's a few times, and it's 
definitely a um, a creepy feeling place. And you know, of course, we've been there when it was open, and you know, for, with the music and everything. And we've been there on private uh, tours when it wasn't open. Matter of fact, we're going back on June 9th, which is a Sunday. I think it's the ninth, but we're actually doing one of our live events inside Bobby Mackey's with the paranormal group up there. So um, definitely looking forward to, to being back up there, but definitely cautious at the same time. Oh, sure. You know, and that's the thing. I think people, sometimes people get frustrated because, you know, they've seen the show and they, they expect to be pushed or scratched or something, something to happen. But people have got to understand when I was there, I was in the middle of performing the minor rite of exorcism. And that is a that in itself is a very sacred rite. And basically, the minor rite is performed when a demonic entity or malevolent spirit has infested itself within a building or home. And then I'm called out to perform the minor rite. The purpose of it is to force the entity um, to to manifest itself, and then you you perform the ritual. So I do provoke, but I provoke through prayer. And exorcist, that is how you provoke. You do not. There's a difference between inviting and provoking through prayer. So an exorcist will provoke through prayer. Invitation is when you say, hey, come on, do something. I dare you to do something. I dare you to push me. Now you've just invited yourself to any type of demonic attachment. So there's a big difference between the two there. Now, I've seen your presentation, I want to say it was six, seven years ago. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever ever seen you live and totally captivated me, which is why I wanted you to come do this live event with us. And and what I saw you do, and I'm not going to have you speak too much on it because obviously we want people to see you live do this, but you did the, the stages of demonic possession. Uh, and mm-hmm. I was just completely blown away at how that was broken down. And the um, uh, the clips of exorcisms that you played, it just everything tied in. It truly was one of the most awesome presentations of anything I've ever seen in my entire life. So I just wanted to say thank you for leaving an impression because it, that definitely is something that stuck with me six, seven years later. Well, I, I appreciate that, and, and you know, and actually, if people show up there, they're going to find that. Um, the three stages that many people refer to, um, it's it actually incorrect. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about why that is. Because there, there's another, there is, when you get a little bit deeper with infestation, uh, there's, um, there's a little bit deeper, more, more information there. And I'm going to be sharing that with everybody on, uh, on the gathering. So, Here's what I want to do now, Bishop Long. Uh, we've talked about the quote-unquote uh, headlining star stuff, the, the exorcism, demonology. That's what a lot of people want to hear. But I want people to know about the other side of Bishop Long. Uh, you're, you you posted something on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, and I share a lot of the stuff that you post in the group because in our Facebook group, we are very encouraging. We're very uh, mental health uh, awareness, uh, anti-suicide, as far as getting people to uh, try to get help if they need it. So our, our group is a big 3,000-person support group on helping each other feel good. And you put out a lot of positive messages on Facebook. So I share a lot of those in the group. And one of the things that you put out was you don't really advertise yourself. like You advertise, obviously, as a, as a, uh, a demonologist and an exorcist because that's how you get 
gigs that help pay for your ministry. But you pointed out that, you know, you don't see yourself as that. That's just part of what you do. You you are a, a uh, uh, clergy first and foremost, and you do a lot of things that probably don't get publicized. And I wanted to see some of that get publicized tonight. So I know everything like the money that we're paying you for this event is all going to help your ministry. You self-fund all of this stuff. So take a few minutes and tell everybody about the things that you use this money for and, and what your ministry does. Sure. And also, let me just say, I will be on the April 6th. I will be talking about my experience at the Exorcist House because I did the Exorcism Live and there was a huge you know, uproar about that. But I'll chat about that on April 6th and what I experienced. And I think uh, a lot of people are going to be very, very interested in hearing uh, what I experienced on, on the uh, Exorcism Live at the Exorcist House. But the thing is, is with me, I don't, when you see Bishop James Long, one of the things that I have tried so hard on is not to push exorcist, exorcist, because I don't ever want to come across as I'm using the, the, the name exorcist as sensationalism so that I can be a big celebrity in the paranormal field. I, I, everything that I have done, all the shows that I have done, every one of them, I've never been paid one penny for. All the television shows, not one penny. Now, at the events, if I have a presentation, if I do a, like, for a, your event, and if they do make a donation, I, I, that donation has to go to my homeless ministry. I have a homeless ministry and a single mother's ministry. And I've been doing homeless ministry since I was 15 years old. I mean, it's, I'm very passionate about it. And I, there's been so many people who have contacted me who are single moms who, for example, they get out of a, a horrible relationship, a very violent relationship, and they, they're in a home, they don't want to lose their apartment, they don't want to lose their housing, and then they apply for government assistance. Well, if anybody's ever you know, been under, in government assistance, you know it takes a little bit of time to get approved. And so during that transition period, they are in turmoil. Um, and so then they contact me, and they ask for help. And I verify uh, if they need help with electric or food or even their, their rent. And if I have any type of income, for any of these events, then I give that to them. I do that because could I, theoretically, do I have the right to put every single penny that I make in the paranormal in my pocket? Yes. But that, to me, is not being, you know, first of all, it's not being a bishop. Second of all, it's not being Christ-like. And third, I, don't, I have a roof over my head. I have food. I have clothes. I am blessed. And I have taken a vow of poverty. I'm a Benedictine, um, and I've been a Benedictine for many since 2004. And so as a Benedictine, my vow of poverty, I take that very seriously. And so I go out to homeless camps in Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee, and I pass out food. I pass out sleeping bags, clothes, shoes, socks, gloves, whatever that they need. If I, if I can, then I pass that out. And the single moms who contact me, then I give them the funds if they need immediate assistance. I help them. And it's, it's rather simple. People ask me, why do I do it? Well, it's very, very, very easy because that is where I see God. The only time we should ever look down upon someone is when we're bending over to pick them up. And when you are helping someone who you know cannot return the favor as far as financially or any other way, just to see 
that light in their eyes, that gl- just that, that that small glimmer. That's God. Because throughout their whole entire, if they're homeless, you see that light dim in in these people. You see hopelessness, and one act, one very kind of act of love, is enough to see that spark. And that is that is where you see the divine. That's where I experience God. And so that's why I do this. I do it because I'm called to do it, and I, I do it because selfishly, um, I also experience God in that moment. Uh, and and that's part of what I was saying earlier when I said that I commend you for what you do, because like I said, I I, I know enough about you to know that this is who you are. You are just genuinely a good guy that's doing what you were called to do. And like I said, I 100% commend you for it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Again, I, I think if anybody goes out with me and they, and they see the people, a lot of people say, well, why do you do with the homeless? Well, why don't they just go out and get a job? Why don't they just do this? A lot of the homeless may have suffering from mental illness or they may suffering from, you know, a drug addiction. Or they say, well, why don't they go to a homeless shelter? They don't need to be out in the streets begging for money. People got to understand, I used to be a homeless, I used to be a shelter coordinator, a homeless shelter coordinator. So I know what goes on behind the scenes. And a lot of people who are homeless, they will have weapons on them, a knife or something to protect themselves. That is their protection. And when they go to a homeless shelter, they're required to to turn all that that into the, the person who takes the intake. Sometimes, well, the majority of time, when they check out, their items are not given back to them. And for you and me, that knife may not be a big symbol, but for them, that is the difference between protecting themselves and not protecting themselves. And that's why a lot of people don't go to homeless shelters, because they have to turn in their personal items, and a lot of times they don't get them back. And so that's why they prefer to sleep on you know, on, on the streets, because at least they have that, um, that, that, that weapon to protect themselves. Well, I mean, that makes perfect sense, and I'd never really thought about it from that standpoint because I didn't know. Like, I'm sure most people yeah. don't know. So I will say this. Um, you know, when I came to you and said, hey, will you do this show, and I asked what your fee was, you told me, and another credit to, to what you do, you told me, uh, what do you think's fair? Just make a donation. And I thought that was incredible because I really was expecting, you know, I've got this hardcore number because, like I said, I've I've seen you on TV. I've seen you on, I believe I believe you were part of a History Channel special on that was just talking about hell. And I remembered seeing. I've been here. Yeah, I've been. I've been a lot. On TV, <laughs> a lot. Uh, but, and, you know, and the reason, honest to God, for it is, if you if you notice, if you ever watch it, it's to get the word about the paranormal clergy out. The paranormal clergy is something I started 15 years ago, and I really didn't want to do it because I, I wanted to stay private with my ministry. But people were telling me, you know, James, we need help. We need, we need. When I started, there was only one other clergy helping the paranormal. And that was Father Andrew Calder, and he was Anglican. He wasn't a Catholic priest. And so when I started, there were no Catholic clergy, none. No old Catholic, no Roman Catholics helping the paranormal community. I was the first. And because I was the first and I was old Catholic, you know, you have to take the good, <laughs> the good comments with the bad comments because there were plenty. 
And, um, but it was me, it was me and father Andrew Calder and that was it. And, you know, we, we discussed things, you know, back in the day and you may, you may know this, there was no Facebook. There was no MySpace. We communicated through Yahoo groups. <laughs> That's how the paranormal community, <laughs> you know, communicated with each other. Yahoo groups. That was the thing. That was it. Uh, boy, our times have changed. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> So let me ask you this. You you have some um, classes that people can take online. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about these yeah. classes. Yeah, I have a master's of education, so I love to teach. Uh, that's a deep passion of mine as well. So anything that I can teach and pass on, I, I love to do that. And so I started uh, the paranormalcourse.com, and it contains demonology, Paranormal Studies, Angelology, and Genealogy. You can learn all four courses. 100% of those funds, besides the PayPal fees, I can't do anything about that, but 100% of those funds goes to helping my homeless ministry and single mother's ministry. I have 48 moms right now desperately needing help right now. The difference between being homeless and not being homeless. And so um, all that goes to, and it's only $49.99. That's it. I can't get it any lower than that. And I tried, but that's as low as I can get it. And I don't think that's asking that much for four really detailed courses. Um, I'm very proud of them. So paranormalcourse.com. And um, again, it all goes to helping fund the ministry. And these are, are learned as you go, like uh, learn at your own pace, correct? It is. And, that, and that's the great thing. You can learn pretty much anywhere. I mean, as long as you have a computer, you can be anywhere in the world. And you can learn at your own pace. There is no, you have to do this at a certain time, a certain date. You learn at your own pace and, um, and at your own convenience. So there is no school. There's no building. It's all 100% online. And it's just one of those things that for me, it's just me passing on at least the information that I have learned throughout the years. And I want to pass that on to other people. So let me ask you this, Bishop Long, because we're going to go ahead and, and, uh, finish up with the interview, but if somebody, other than that, if somebody wanted to make a donation to your ministry, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, and yeah, and thank you for the question. The best, the best way to go is uh, then go to www.bishopjameslong.com, bishopjameslong.com, and you will see a link there that says a donation to the homeless now or single mothers. When you make the donation, I always tell people, do me a favor um, if you want it to go to the homeless ministry, then just say homeless ministry. If you would prefer it to go to the single moms ministry, just say single moms. If you don't care and you just want to make a donation, then I'll just, uh, most funds will be distributed to whatever is the immediate need. So that's uh, entirely up to the person that donates. But Bishop James Long, L-O-N-G, and then um, we can go from there. Bishop Long, it's been awesome having you on. It's been too long. We've tried this a couple of times, and... You know, it just uh, timing doesn't always work out, but I'm I'm glad that we finally got you on. Can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks and uh, really looking forward to it. Me too. It's going to be an exciting time. All right, brother. Well, I'll talk to you very soon. Thanks.